So yeah, we're talking about the character stuff question. Questions. Oh, granularity. Yeah, and granularity. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to the Design Games Podcast. My name is Nathan Pletta. I'm a game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. So here's a very interesting question that I received via email from listener Jade asking that one of the things that irritates Jade about class-based systems where you're making your character, you know, you pick a class and whatever, D&D, is that how the class or possibly the playbook defines the character. And they ask, is there a way to design a class-based character creation system so that the character actually defines the class? Which I think is a really interesting reversal of that that assumption. What do you think, Will? Well, what's interesting to me... I, yeah, it's a great question, and I think that you can design it. I think you can address the situation in design, but if you do, you risk either messing with the terminology of class such that it won't feel like a class anymore. Like, mm-hmm. like this has sort of been, not solved, but addressed, approached successfully or partially successfully by things like Lady Blackbird, where each character is a character, not a class, mm-hmm. and they are not representative of a whole category of people saying that all fighters are thus and all wizards are thus, they are specific individuals. So their powers and abilities are that character, and that character, therefore, informs a larger part of the world. We know that there are pit fighters. We can have a certain sense of what royalty or uh, uh, skyship captains are like and so mm-hmm. forth. The question to me is, is a matter of which side you start on. If you're projecting out from a character or you're drilling down from a class, right. otherwise the conduit between them doesn't necessarily even exist. Well, like in Lady Blackbird... That's still an individual character. Well, first of all, they're, those characters are, are, are pretty tightly circumscribed, right? right? Like, right. Yeah, that, there's a lot... Down the other end of the yeah, story. most of them, they're, they're pretty tightly defined already, so you can just pick up and play, and you could extrapolate out the general class that they like, belong to, in air quotes, from that, but you're not building the character in, right. in right. the traditional sense of, like, I'm going to pick a class and then build a character who is defined by that. Which is kind of what I'm getting at, is that I think that a lot of it is that once you change it enough so that you're defining character first and then extrapolating class from it or expanding out into Mm -hmm. class from it, we have different terms for that. Yeah. Part of what is interesting about that to me is the idea of relationships both assumed and imposed by the game Mm -hmm. between character and class. Mm-hmm. Because to a certain extent, this is a playcraft question in that I've, I've, I've done this in D&D where you take the class and say, okay, you are the only paladin mm-hmm. or the first paladin mm-hmm. or whatever, right? And that's what Dungeon World does, right? Like textually, like it says, you are the wizard. Not necessarily. Well, actually, I always read that as you are the wizard of the party because I always got the impression that there was, were certainly other other adventuring groups roaming around hmm. Dungeon Worlds. Maybe I'm interpreting that know. from Apocalypse World where like you're the gunlugger. Right. Like other people lug guns, but you are the gun leader. Right, right. And, and so that's a case then where the, right, the playbook is, is establishing a character from which we can extrapolate other ways of living and so forth. Right, but, so they're, but they're both um, still in the framework of uh, here are many of options that are defined by this game design organizational term class right. or playbook. Like a class isn't a, so far in RPGs, is, is its own piece of terminology that doesn't really map to things in the real world. Right, like like when we use the term class as like a social class, 
in the real world, that's not the same kind of thing that a character class is in D&D. One could make that a, a, a pivot point for inquiry, right? Like if your character class is nouveau, riche, or proletariat, not sure wizard or warrior. Which, which games do and just call it something else like occupation or origin or right. background. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the notion of class has a certain... But it's a meta-concept, I guess, is what I'm, I'm trying to say. Yeah, that can be blurred into the setting, literally or yeah. figuratively. Class in terms of, like, classes of home appliances, right? I mean, or classes sure. of automobiles yeah. or whatever, right? It's always going to be... It's a term that is always redrawn, but intuitively similar in different industries, mm -hmm. different hobbies, different sectors. And I think there's a tradition in class that class is based more on profession and ideology. It's mm -hmm. what you do, not necessarily where you come from, because we inherit some of that from D&D. But I don't think that's a mandate. I think that's a just a, a curiosity of how the right. term is applied. I mean, like the, the, the splats, in, for lack of a better term, uh, in White Wolf, right, are also classes but defined differently. Like your clan isn't what you do. Your clan is like a kind of a set of attributes that you occupy. Well, right? and depending on the, the World of Darkness game and the and the, the version of it, right, clan it can be race and class and combo. It can be just right. your history. It can be just your what you do. Mm -hmm. That was always one of the things that I think was both fascinating and sometimes unhappily pigeonholing or happily pigeonholing in, in, in Vampire of, of old and, and throughout various editions and various iterations of the game is that the class that you adopt as a clan, one clan might... There are different shapes, right? D&D classes mm -hmm. are meant to be about the same shape. Each one has about the same mass, if you will, mm -hmm. even if they have different drag or different com complexity, mm -hmm. uh, or at least early on, and that changes more and more. But that in Vampire, this class might dictate your history, your origin, what you want, how you get it, and why you want it. This next clan might indicate only how you get stuff. We don't care what you want, and we don't care where you're from. Every All, all Nosferatu are like this. All... Tremere are like this, mm -hmm. but they don't necessarily all prescribe the same amount of prefab decisions to the player. Sure, yeah. I think this is all still, we still haven't got to the that cool idea, though, which is, so the class or clan or, yeah. or playbook is a top-down design decision of here are the different kinds of character you can play, and then you create within that bucket. You pick the Nosferatu bucket and then Right, or right. whatever here's you the, want. Here's it the prefab box of options you pick from the right. stuff that comes in this box for your character. So, and I think Jade is asking about how do you go about thinking about I want to play this character, and then by building them, perhaps I'm defining a larger sense of what this kind of person means in the world. Right, which is which is again I think game design in the sense of, but it's world design, it's mm -hmm. setting design. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's campaign design. I think it's giving you. It's giving like. This idea gives you a lot, of, uh, a lot of definitional power over how the game world looks and works. Right? Well, I, I think, I think, I think, it, I think there's an assumption that it does if it's functioning, but we don't know if that's supported by the game, right? So, well, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that mm -hmm. if a character is a specific list of options from a box, even if that box is everything available in the book, mm -hmm. and then this character is any five things. And then we decide that because this character, Conan, picks these five things, barbarians will be thus. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, in fact, the D&D barbarian, as an example, or the D&D ranger, are examples of classes built out of character types rather than the other way around. And that the rangers are meant to be your striders and your, your you know, your wilderness, your elves and your Legolasses and mm -hmm. stuff. And uh, the barbarians are meant to be Conan-esque. Mm -hmm. um, 
but then they're categorized, so they naturally end up with a list of options bigger than those characters. Mm -hmm. So I think the question, the, I mean, the, 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 depending on, the more we generalize this, the less apt we get to the topic, and the more specific we get, the less it's about mechanical game design alone. Mm -hmm. And the more, it, and I think, and I think, fruitfully and and and, and validly, stems into setting design, which is to say that I kind yeah. of can't answer this question without knowing what world we're talking about. Right. Well, and one design tradition of this is the collaborative world building, where by making characters, you thus define the world around them. Right. But at which at which point? But I, I don't know if anyone looks at that and goes intuitively, that's going to then generate some kind of class-based attributes. I mean, I, I think you know? it could in a, in a large enough per, uh, persistent world mm -hmm. in which I make a character and then I decide that character is part of a knightly order and then you make another knight. Right. So it goes up into the knightly order and then back down into this individual instance of another character right, in the next right. Lamia or whatever. Yeah. Otherwise, the difference between me designing a class, one character and calling it a class and saying that they're all like this. Mm -hmm. Like, if my character's the only one like it in the setting or in the campaign, right. is that a in class? the series, right? The, the character and the class are indistinguishable, which is to say the class does not exist. Mm -hmm. I'm calling it a yeah. class. Yeah, I guess my I'm, I'm wondering whether, like, you just don't use the word class anymore. Because you clearly can make characters in other ways that aren't picking a template or picking a class or picking right. whatever, like the more point, point by based kind of things or um, like the hero quest narrative creation option where you write like a, life paths or any well, kind of in hero, just well, as an additional. Well, right. Or like life paths, but like in hero quest, there's one option for character creation where you write, uh, I think it's hero quest. I think you can also do this in the pool, but you write a, a 50 word little, essay a little little story about your character and then you underline the cool stuff that's in there and those become your traits right right yeah or life path stuff which is kind of a um which is really good for setting design like burning wheel Im implies all of its setting through the life paths there's no setting chapter in burning wheel it's all interpolated through the information available to you from the life paths the skills and like the magic and stuff right. like that but like there's no map of burning wheel land or yeah. breakdown of this is how this is how breweries work in this world. Right. Um, even though there's a ton of like you can be a brewer and take brewery skills and stuff like that. And well, and it's assuming a certain amount of optional in its variety and in its intensity, but a certain amount of historical influence in. Yeah, we will know that brewing includes certain things and just does not include mm -hmm. other things. I mean, I think it's a fascinating. Is it possible to design a class-based character creation so that the character defines the class? To me, a, a riveting design challenge. Yeah, it's a it's kind of a, a Cohen to me. Yeah. Right now, I'm like, this is something that I would meditate on because I think it's one thing about this conversation that I'm hearing as we're having it is like, I don't know if that is a thing that can happen. Once you go backwards, right. is it a class anymore? Right. So right. like, therefore, are you just moving into a different design space? Or is this something where there are some attributes of a class system that you can preserve, but use the player choices about their character as the starting point, instead of using the designer choices about how the different characters work as the starting point. Right, at which point we are once again challenging the definitions of these words in interesting right. ways, which is, I think, completely fruitful. Yeah. So uh, My personal instinct is, is to say, yes, it's possible. Yes, but I think so too. If it were for a saleable product, I would probably end up then changing the terms at, at the end so as to not bring in the unnecessary baggage of people considering that I pick the class first and derive a character from it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, or you do a, a thing where the 
project of the game is what this, you know, this game is about creating some kind of social order out of this set of characters right here, right now. And then that sets up for like long-term play. As you say, like if someone else comes into the game, you have to find the rat catcher and the moon monk and like whatever your characters are that then have burned some kind of traits into the world at large that then like later play calls upon or something. Just like it's really interesting. I feel like when you reverse the the flow, like you're saying, from character to class, and then to demonstrate that it is a class, it has to come back and create characters, right? To come out of it. Like, is that is that true? Like, I'm just yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. But I think it's that interesting notion of it ties into linear time in a way that means that again, it wants to be setting specific. It wants Mm -hmm. to be about um, how this character creates contributes to the creation of this Mm -hmm. world, whatever world that is, whichever character, whichever character that is, and however many times. I mean, I'm imagining this in in a tabletop sense of how difficult it would be to get the different worlds to co to agree so that I create a world and we create worlds as a designer and then people go off and play in them. And then every minute that they play their worlds get beautifully and rambunctiously and fractally out of sync with whatever future we may have tried to prescribe as developers. Mm -hmm. And then we have to, use the classes, I guess, to bring the play back so that there can be a point where we rendezvous and say, okay, yeah, out of the 20 games being played of this across the country, what are the, the five classes that emerge from the characters or whatever? I mean, it's fascinating. Yeah. But I really do think that it becomes as much of a setting question as it does a mechanical question. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, it would be something fascinating to do over time in something like an MMO where mm-hmm. you say the beta players come in and they do, and they do point by. And then, based on the combinations of, of character types, that creates classes for people who play in here too, or whatever. Well, that makes me think of back to D anD D. The in second edition, there was the uh, skills and powers thing where it did break down characters stuff into a point by system. Yeah. And you theoretically could like go ahead and make your custom character that pulls all these things from the, it has this spell casting capability and it has this ranged attack capability and it has these thief skills or whatever but i remember whenever i tried to build anything with that it basically always ended up like this is a less effective character than just playing a class based character which i don't know if that was a design thing or like my ineptitude at using that in particular uh point by system i i seem to recall having the same experience yeah which was that that if everybody uses the point by system you can have a really cool array of characters Mm -hmm. and if any one person decides to just play an AD&D wizard, and by the time we all get to 10th level, that wizard is going to destroy us all. Right. And that means also, right, that ties into the, the notion that unless there is, without a common agenda, without the, all the players buying into the notion that your character is de- defining this thing, because, mm-hmm. de- I mean, how does the defining happen mechanically without also happening, happening fictionally? Right. And so everybody has to agree, like, without another player or the GM or somebody saying, people will follow in your footsteps and play this class that you have defined. There is almost no functional difference between a character and a class with one person in it. Right. Yeah, I think that's what we've been kind of circling around is yeah. that the, the nomenclature of class can can disappear. If, if the effect you want is like, I can define this character and here's all the different ways that characters work in this world and now I have this character that no one else could ever possibly make because I'm a unique person and I made this unique thing, then the notion of class is kind of like this appendage flapping around on the end of it, right? Unless you are, like we've said, bringing it back in in some way or establishing some kind of fictional precedent for later play. 
You know what's interesting is is this is as I, the more I think about it, and from what I've been seeing on Twitter with uh, uh, some game designers who've been talking about uh, the way that D and D five is expanding. D and D five is really good at not so much solving this problem in this way, but making it so that class, so that you can have five warlocks in a D and D game and have each of them feel like they are part of a unique circumstance. Hmm. Uh, so that there are lots of different origins and types and histories or progression paths within the class without just doing, I mean, not just, I, I thought prestige classes are pretty cool, but they're kind of a finite mm-hmm. uh, degree to which they're manageable. But that in, in, so that you can say, okay, well, I'm a bard from this college and I'm the last of my kind. And somebody else can say, okay, well, I'm the first from this other school of bards. And we're both technically bards, but we're neither one of us are being pinned mm-hmm. down by the bard label or by the barbarian label or by the warlock label or whatever it is. I think this, this actually brings yeah. us to one of our other questions, which is this, it gets to like how, how granular are the options within the class like how templated is it in a, in a sense like how how much is it just picking a thing and going versus having like a lot of options i think traditionally classes have had a lot of options for character of effectiveness but left character background say or character intention just up to the player yeah while in uh in fifth with whoever the, the the warlocks have their agreement with and stuff like that. Yeah, that's the defining feature and of the warlock. And that's the defining feature of the warlock, but you have a lot of options to play with that option. Yeah. Right? In a way that isn't just, just make it up. Right, right. right. Like you, there's mechanical stuff that you can associate with that background choice. It's created a very specifically shaped box that if you can get interesting things to fit in that box, as mm-hmm. long as you can, it's, it's sort of like... Um, I mean, the fact that it's based on a relationship rather than based on the characters involved, because the mm-hmm. warlock as a class doesn't know who you are making, and it doesn't know what the eldritch power is that's giving you your spells necessarily. Mm-hmm. So it has to focus on that interstitial space. And the notion is, I get my power from somebody else, that, that's what makes me a warlock. Mm-hmm. Whether or not that thing is an ancient long-dead wizard, or a fairy prince, or whatever it is, that's a, that's a shape. That's a, there are lots of little you know figures whose who's feet have the pegs that can plug into that socket. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's easy to craft our own to fit into that socket. Whereas for the fighter, right, it's, it's the fighter's relationships are not what defines that class so much. Well, except mm-hmm. for, I suppose, I'm not I'm going to kill it. But <laughs> it doesn't have that same sense of, like, we have a productive play space, like, design space to make a bunch of different things that fit into this. Well, I mean, right. it's really, it, well, it does, right, in the sense that, like, you could make up all kinds of ancestral weapons and histories and mm-hmm. stuff, but it's not like the fighter is based on, it's not like the fighter derives their power from the from the, the feudal lord from which they derived their martial training or the dojo at which they studied. Mm-hmm. And so it's like uh, uh, linked little almost questionnaires or pages or sandboxes or something of ideas where it's like, okay, so the fighter is defined by, in many cases, let's say, the armor that she wears and the weapon that she wields. And the warlock is defined by where his power comes from and what he points it at. Well, But those are still questions. They're yeah. still to be filled in. Right. And so that, and that creates lots of different levels so that there's granularity, not just in the sense of like, uh, so if we think of granularity on one level as being like the resolution that the graphics are done in, which is not the only way to think about it, but it's the notion, right, that a high-res image has a bit more granularity. The textures are sharper, there are more polygons, more triangles involved, mm-hmm. it's a smoother image, but there's a, it's incredibly complicated to model and to track, and every time you move something, 10 other things can get moved, and you have chaos theory mm-hmm. in full effect. Uh, but there's also the notion that inside these kind of character classes, like we're talking about, there are multiple degrees of granularity within the classes, right? So... Mm-hmm. The shape of the warlock's uh, eldritch power, or the old one that it derives its spells from, or whatever, uh, there are a certain number of traits that go into defining that char- that creature. What spells it gives out, you know, every couple of levels it gives you a thing. Uh, 
Uh, but then the Warlock still has the same granularity of ability scores. So some of these things, are, and so some of the classes are very granular, are, are very fiddly, as we sometimes mm -hmm. say, right? They have lots of details and lots of sliders right. and knobs and dials and switches to flip. And others are less so. Mm -hmm. Well, and traditionally, right, the, the spellcasters have had more stuff uh, as, as you level up, you know, because they have to deal with spells. Yeah. And while the, 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 the curves cross pretty early where the fighters, you know, end up having kind of the same options every level. And there's, you know, some, like, skill-based stuff in the middle. How many decisions you make and how often and how fast you have to make mm -hmm. them. So wizards make decisions every day. And a fighter might pick his weapon, you know, uh, uh, the player, the fighter might pick the weapon the fighter wields at character creation and then just be like, no, I'm, I just wield this two-handed sword for the rest of my fighter's life. Mm -hmm. And that could be important. But that's one decision that persists. Whereas a wizard, even if they have a magic snap, they'd be picking spells every day. Right. Yeah. So this brings us to... To, to this uh, last question that we're going to consider today that is about granularity, which is why we started talking about it. Um, and this question is from Russell, who says that he is spending a lot of time thinking about granularity of character stats, mm -hmm. which is what we're just talking about. For example, uh, a long skill list, in quotes, whatever that actually looks like, but a long skill list spells out many approaches and outcomes for your fiction. But if you list too many and the rules get unwieldy or strictly dictate the possibilities... If you have a smaller list, the fiction is open to interpretation, but there's less guidance about the nature of approach and outcome, so you end up having to improv which works and which doesn't, which usually falls on the GM, right? Uh, and he says that he's trying to discover a sweet spot or a reliable system of guidance to get good inventive choices rather than rote repetition and kind of the, um, and I'm going to read into what he says here, and like the, the solved problem thing, right, where it's like, this one skill is what you should always use to do this right. because it is always going to be the most appropriate thing. Right. We, we, we're, we're facing this monster, this problem, mm -hmm. this crime scene, this, this journey. I will always roll this skill and I, always, and, and I, just, I will spend the same points on it or whatever. I just keep it leveled. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And so, yeah, and, and as he says, it's a squishy concept and there's no you know, capital R. In the room of objectivity, there is no right answer to it. But uh, the sliding scale granularity and the trade-off as he very aptly points out, of locking down what's possible and leaving things open to interpretation versus uh, handling time, fiddliness. What I see with, like, the, with having that solved problem is that you lose tension and you lose choice, and it doesn't... It, when, once it becomes rote, then it's no longer, like, a fun piece of the game. Well, yeah, exactly. It, it, can, it can diminish the extent to which we consult the fiction. Yeah. Somebody can just listen. Oh, is this a role-playing scene? I will roll my charisma. Okay, I scored it, so I succeed. What's the next scene? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think you see. You might see that with something where there's always a there's always only one skill you can use to do a thing, mm -hmm. right? Or only one ability you can use to do a thing. So it's the same thing where it's like, oh, it's a lockpicking challenge, so I'm going to use my lockpick skill. Right. And there's no investigation or... or uh, trying to give yourself an advantage in some way or finding some way around the thing. It's just who has the best, and that's another thing, who has the best lock picking? Okay, come over here and pick the lock. Right. Now, who has the best bridge building? Come over here and build the bridge. Yeah. Well, and it's, um, yeah, it creates that, that situation not only where it lets the tension out, right, and it pre-makes decisions. You make decisions during character creation, mm -hmm. and then it's just a matter of checking those decisions throughout an adventure or a session or whatever where the GM says, Hey, did anybody put points in lockpicking, right? So that what, what part of what it does is, I think the tension goes out in part because it's deferring the results of a decision. So you make mm -hmm. a decision 
between sessions when you spend your skill points or whatever, let's say, mm -hmm. and then you wait three weeks to find out if there's a lock that needs to be picked so that you can go, yep, sure enough. And mm -hmm. then rather than finding out whether or not you put in enough points or you got lucky with the dice or whatever it is, it's just, did anybody? Yes? Great. Next scene. Did right. anybody? Yes. Great. Next monster. Mm -hmm. And because yeah. binary, even if the system isn't binary. That was my experience with GURPS. I played a bunch of GURPS for a number of years and uh, really enjoyed the games that we were playing. But in terms of character creation and how skills worked in that game, kind of what I came away with was whatever I want my character to be really good at and reliably be able to do, make sure you're, they have a 16 in that skill. Mm -hmm. Everything that I think might come up and maybe the, the specialist on the team that isn't going to be around or maybe, you know, the just-in-case scenario, make sure they have a 12 or 13. And then everything else is just, like, for funsies. Like, everything else is like, oh, I can, I can use the skills to give, like, a nice sense of my character and, like, kind of their background and what they know. Right. And you do that through the use of, like, some skill points in some areas. And I really like that about a, a big, long skill system where you can actually make these really three-dimensional characters that you can see on the sheet. Because you can see, oh, I know this. I know how to do this. Oh, they have rock climbing. That's interesting. You know, is that a hobby? Did right. they... Where did they learn it? Why yeah. Do they, why do they, do they keep it up? Yeah. Right. All that kind of stuff. So for me, as like immersing in my character's experience, having that long skill list is helpful. But in terms of being able to effectively play this game... Here are the two things that they're really good at. Make sure I put all my points in those because they're going to come up over and over and over. So, so for you, GURPS is a three-tier system. There's just three There's three degrees of points, really. Mm -hmm. There's 8, 12, and 16 or whatever, let's yeah. say. So there's cosmetic, there's descriptive, let's say. There's just in case, mm -hmm. and there's good at it, yes. accomplished. So why are there all those numbers in between? Right. right. And, I've, and I've played with that idea in, in design since, inspired by that experience, including the thought of like... The reason to still take those cosmetic skills is that maybe in in some instance it becomes really relevant, and maybe there's a me mechanic where you just where you can switch your skill numbers, and that's how your character is from then on. So like in this big scene where we actually have to climb a mountain, hey, guess what? I did. I do have this rock climbing background. I switch it out of my race car driving skill, which right. is what I'm, which is my usual role in the party. But then from then on, I'm the mountain climbing guy. And then maybe there's some kind of other mechanic or currency or something that lets you, you know, do that a certain number of times or yeah. in certain circumstances. So there's a freebie one for anyone who wants well, to play with that idea. It's kind of like being able to spend skill points during play, yeah. only without the headache of then tracking 100 skill points over mm. 50, you know, 50, 50 hours of play, mm. finding out, well, God, now I've spent 100 skill points. It just took me seven weeks to do it. And I don't want to, I can't remember what all these, Yeah, why I have three points of rock climbing now. <laughs> And it's never going to come up again or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really, I like that. Mm -hmm. Well, and so one of the questions I, that, that always comes up to mind in this with me is, when we talked about this some before, is the notion of, of skill as descriptor and skill as expressor. Yeah. Which yeah. are similar, right? But one is expressing, I don't want to be humiliated by this during play. Or one is, I want to, I want to look awesome when this happens. Mm -hmm. One is just, I want it to be known that my character has, has this in his background. Because and some of that is still is playcraft that gets influenced by the book or gets influenced by the game, which I don't you know GMs don't necessarily live in a vacuum. The idea that oh you don't have points in that, then you are a fool at it. No 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 no. Mm -hmm. I'm just not like mm -hmm. like who knows? Right? In some games, ha having no points mm -hmm. in horse riding means no, you will fall off a horse and make a fool out of yourself. Yeah. 
And in other games, it means, whatever, don't worry about it. You almost never have to roll it. You can you can ride a horse, you just can't do any cool tricks. And again, like, uh, in Burning Wheel, there's the beginner's luck rule. Yeah. And I believe, and it's in other games too, where if you don't have a skill, you actually have some baseline ability that's just like, we don't know if you're good at this yet. And then if you want to invest in it past that, then you get into, like, the, yeah. the system of actually building up your skill like any other. Because that's what I think a lot of people, especially new new game designers... Uh, or young gamers, not even whether they're designing, whether they're designing a character or a campaign or whatever it is, um, is the assumption that they don't get to design to, to define what zero is for for a stat. Mm -hmm. When you really do, that's a really interesting point that I've never thought about. You know, is, yeah. is the idea that is zero? If I have zero in drive, can I get in a car and make it go? And the thing is that for if, if this game is set in America in 1990, yes, you could probably make a car go. Are you are, are you are people going to be able to tell by looking at you that you can't drive? Probably, mm -hmm. I would guess. But that's still a decision that we would get to make based on what the game is about. Is the game just about right. people in industrialized cultures in 1990, or is it a game about high school kids learning to drive? Is it a game about you know, right? right. These are these are relevant to the well, question. I think a lot of games kind of split this hair by um, by saying like whatever your by defaulting to like your concept, right? Like whatever your character is, what whatever their deal is you can reasonably expect that you'd have the skills that we all kind of understand that kind of person to have. If you are a teenager in California in 1990, of course you know how to drive. You know, every teenager in California in 1990 knew how to drive. Oh, if you're a teenager in Manhattan, maybe not. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, like, in that case, then you get into this idea of, like, who makes the judgment call? Is this a thing where it goes to a GM who, who says, yes, I agree, or no, I disagree, or is it a player-facing thing where you say, oh, no, my character is actually from a city and has always taken public transportation and never learned to drive. So my zero in drive means I can't even make the car go. Right. Right. For whatever value that has for the, the you know, And you see this narrative. actually when it comes to the granularity of stats. You see this in advantage-disadvantage mechanics a lot because those are often the only mechanics that allow a character to take a negative mm -hmm. historically where you can say, I literally don't know how to drive mm -hmm. and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it not just that I want to get points from not knowing how to drive. I want to refund it on the points that all of you implicitly have by knowing how to drive. But I want it to be a, it's a part of my character. Mm -hmm. That I can navigate subway systems all over the world. I can get on a plane. I can do all that stuff. But if I actually have to drive this cab to get out of, to get away from this monster. Like, I'm, I'm, telling, I'm telling everyone right now that I can't do that. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's the, the part of, again, like granularity in terms of stats... From, from things that are historically called attributes to things that are historically called skills, things that are historically called merits or flaws or adds or disadds, mm -hmm. things that are superpowers, things that are spells or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. These are cut in sort of some prefab ways that, that, in, that we inherit when we design games that we can question all of that. Right, like you don't have to have your, my inborn abilities are my attributes and the things that I've learned once I started learning things are my skills. Like right. that doesn't have to be the either the division between those things or the nomenclature or whatever. I mean, you can go, like, there's there's two ends of the, of the scale, right? Like, all the way at one end is something like Troll Babe, where you have one stat, right? and uh, uh, 316 inherited this, too, where it kind of turned it into two stats. But if you're doing anything that's in this realm, you need to roll over the number. And if you're doing anything that's in, think of there, it's, uh, it's basically like doing magic stuff and doing, like, not magic stuff in Troll Babe. Right. And then in 316, it's, you have two numbers, whether you're doing fighting stuff or they're doing not fighting stuff. There's a, a version of that too, which I think, I think just for, for trivia's sake, I think predates Troll Babe, but mm -hmm. which is um, uh, Lester Smith's Zero. Yeah. Where yeah. you're like the Borg and mm -hmm. you're escaping and you're being, you've been detached and you're escaping the Borg and you have one stat because mm -hmm. that is your, 
that was what you were built to do. And the more things, and it's the number of skills you have. Mm-hmm. So the more things you have, the more things you're capable of doing, the less good you are at all of them. Mm-hmm. And then the multiples of that number that you roll on however many dice it is, is how, is how well you do it. Right. So yeah, so that's one end of the spectrum, right? Where like yeah. that is a, a non-granular you know, on this spectrum. It has one grain. Yeah, there's, one, grains, there's one or two grains. And then at the other end is, you know, using every GURP supplement and making a master list of skills from everything and or like Traveler, right? Like yeah. it has long lists of skills and all the different scientific skills and disciplines and you can yeah. cut those. Where knowledge Kansas and knowledge New Jersey are different skills. Right, different. right. I think the trade-offs are pretty clear. You can, you know, like different troll babes are kind of defined pretty much entirely by the player, mm-hmm. which makes them unique because I'm my troll babe. I'm, I'm never going to describe the same troll babe that you would describe. Right, in part because that's the, it, we're just going a blank page to write on. Right. Yeah, just use language and go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. While our traveler characters also are probably never going to be the same because I have a different set of skills that I think are important for my character than you do. Right. Even if they're both space scientists, right? it's interesting to me. I think about that as the the blank page and the and the sheet of graph paper, which is to say that a sheet mm-hmm. of graph paper has so many squares on it mm-hmm. that you can just draw all over it. Yeah, that if the answer is just own. fill in ten squares, mm-hmm. well, the odds that we fill in the exact same squares is unlikely, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. and how meaningful is any one square? I don't know, or whatever. You know. Yeah. The, the other metaphor that I love for this is, is if you picture the color wheel, and everybody who's listening, get on Google and just you know bring a Google image search for a color wheel, right? How do you divide a color wheel? How many divisions are there? How many? How do you pinpoint a color, mm-hmm. right? Well, you could just go hot cold. Mm-hmm. You could go by hue. You can go by intensity. You could go by web colors so that you have fewer choices to make, so that there are fewer options available, right? You can go hexadecimal so that there are thousands and thousands of colors, however, right? Mm-hmm. But if the notion is, so how many colors are there? Right. How do you answer that question? Yeah. Pantone answers that question one way. Right. Right. But, like but these are all systems. Mm-hmm. So if if every RPG confronts the color wheel, every RPG has to find a way for players to describe what kind of green they're talking about. And the answer might, might be, I'm talking, you know, 90, 90, 90 in hexadecimal, which I don't mm-hmm. think is green. I might be talking about, you know, the game might just be grayscale to make mm-hmm. it easier. It might be web colors. So there are 13, you know, 16, 64 colors, 32 colors, eight colors, whatever it is. Right. So the question for us, I think, is how do you go about deciding where in the color wheel, you know, to split your, to, to create your spectrum? How do you decide for your game that I do want the uh, improvisational trade-off versus I do want the mm-hmm. prescribed ability to create an interesting character that I wouldn't have thought of by myself, but now I'm kind of, I only have these ways to affect the ongoing game with a longer skill list or yeah. whatever. Do you have any 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 tricks that you do as starting points when you when you're mm-hmm. designing a new RPG for that? Because all, all of mine, I realize, are that what I do is I just try to know if I'm aiming. If I I try to know if I'm starting off with too many or too few to yeah. guess if I'm starting off with too many skills, too many stats, or not enough mm-hmm. stats. I, I'm often right that I have too many or too few, but I almost never hit the number perfectly mm-hmm. in the first play test. So I I, I guess the first thing I would say is I make peace with the fact that I know that I set out and I go, okay, this game has five stats. Why? That's just kind of not an overwhelming number, but it's a nice mm-hmm. variety. And then I go, and after the first play test, I'm gonna, I know that number is going to be called into question. Right. I might arrive at the same five, or I might change which five they are. I might mm-hmm. go down to two, I might go up to six, whatever or it is. Or you might split them into four, four of these, then these three derived, right, right or whatever. Right, and so, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like, I mean, my games often don't have skill lists, 
skills as such. Yeah, stats. stats as stuff. Well, I mean, sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. It's weird. Um, I guess what I, I kind of work backwards where I'm like, you know, what do I want characters to do in this game? What's important? And then I often default to the like, I don't do like I don't really care about whether they're going to be succeeding or failing at discrete tasks, um, or whether it matters that they have this specific kind of knowledge or not, and kind of following that thing of like whatever the deal is, they'll be able to do that stuff. What's important is X, right? And in Annalise, that entire game is built around defining your character in play without stat, like creating your own custom right. traits or your own custom stats um, through play. You start with you start with resource pools, and in each scene, you can define a new stat for your character based on what you want them to be able to do later in the game, or what you want them to present to the world for other people to, to engage with. And that was one of the like projects of that game. Was It's not that it's statless, but it, it, it is a stat generation in play, as opposed to before play. That's interesting, actually. Even if you just take Annalise and ask the question, and I'm going to do it right mm-hmm. now, so give it an answer. How granular do you think Annalise is? There's two dimensions exactly. of granularity in that game in particular. Because there's two, so there's two general fields, right? Um, there's, there's the vulnerability and, and secret. So those are, I guess those are like the two stats, essentially. And then you're making sub-stats out of those. It's either a vulnerability stat or a, a, a vulnerability trait or a secret trait. But, so it's not very granular in that sense. You might end up with four to five over the course of an entire game, maybe six discrete things that your character is. But when it comes to resolution, it's very granular because you you have a bunch of resources to spend, you have dice you're rolling, you're spending resources to change the die numbers, you're using another um, cycle, the, the claims, which are not character-specific, are player-specific, and like you're, you might have eight or ten of those, right. and those come into the resolution affect the character and then kind of come back out. So, like, the character is not very granular, but the the moment-to-moment play has more moving parts than you might expect. Yeah. Do you know um, you know those recycling bins that have different slots for newspapers and bottles and cans mm-hmm. and foodstuffs? Mm-hmm. I was thinking about the different options for, for something like Secret and Vulnerability in Annalise, where it's really there are two buckets, two, 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 two boxes. Mm-hmm. But in a way, but the shape that can fit into the box is changed. So the one hand, there's a little bit of restriction. Restriction. It should be vulnerability, and it should be a secret, and you shouldn't confuse them. Mm-hmm. But as long as it will fit through that slot into the box, it can go into the box. Mm-hmm. So that's what I was thinking with the two dimensions of granularity: is that the slot presents one thing. It must be this small. It must be this specific. But as long as it's a vulnerability, you can write anything in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? yeah. So that's so on one hand. The, the two boxes are very low granularity. Mm-hmm. Inside of those boxes are very high granularity in the sense that any combination of words that makes sense and is, and is compelling mm-hmm. will work. Mm-hmm. That's a huge variety of options. And you compare that to, for example, one of the things I was trying to do with Odyssey, where the, the dimensionality is stats, character stats are like a noun and an adjective. So, mm-hmm. you know, Daredevil pilot or whatever. Right. Those are low granularity in the sense that there are two words, and you can put an of or an an or a the or whatever in there. Uh, but it's two words, so it's not a lot of description. It's not very precise to start off with. Mm-hmm. But it's also highly variable because there are a lot of adjectives and there are a lot of nouns. <laughs> right. And so it's in kind of a similar state. But again, when it yeah. comes to just how do you just casually say is Annalise granular or not, mm-hmm. is how granular is Odyssey, these become complicated questions. And I think that's 
in designing those games, like if I were designing Annalise, hmm. I would know that there would be a period, essentially in the early days of the design, where I would be fretting about how much support I was giving the character and the player about what do I write in these boxes. Mm-hmm. And then, but, but coming to the game as a player and just getting the, the product and reading it, I had none of that fretting. And so I imagine there's a point, and, and so I'm, this is, I'm, I'll, I'm turning, I want to turn this into a question. Mm-hmm. Was there a point where, where you were, how did you know when you had supplied enough support that it had become granularity and not just a blank page? Mm-hmm. Right, that it had become a matter of, of a box to be filled. In that process, I didn't really struggle with that part. Really? Like that was very straightforward. Because sometimes it's just, yeah, yeah. you just know. Right. Um, also, because my comfort zone for play is, like, includes, like, let's come up with something that's semi-directed but unique in mm-hmm. the moment that matters to you. I'm comfortable playing games that ask me to do that, so I didn't feel like that was something I needed to really harp on too much. Because I was kind of like, if people are not comfortable with doing that, then the rest of the game isn't going to get them there. Right. And, like, there's, like, already... Uh, a certain like only so many people are going to be attracted to this game kind of element but in my experience playing it that has rarely sometimes phrasing can be a, the problem like uh-huh. i have this idea and we all agree that the idea is appropriate but like figuring out one sentence to write down right. um that can be the tricky part and sometimes people are better at elucidating a phrase than than others it's also i think it's interesting that because it's such a great it's not just a good system. It's such a great fit for the subject matter mm. and for the, the vibe that you're after. So the vibe is doing, I think, a lot of the support work without you having right. to write it out. Yeah, there's a lot of context that just, like, yeah. helps. And so when you have that kind of situation, I, and I bring this up because I think this still relates to granularity, which is that if you only have two skills mm-hmm. and those skills are weird words or are mm-hmm. common words, if the two skills that you have are fight and defend, first of all, we know what your game is about. Second mm-hmm. of all, Everything the characters will be doing will be either fighting or defending themselves. Well, that's like Swords Without Master, you know, yeah. glum and jovial. Right. And everything you do in that game is going to be either glum or jovial. Right. And so how much support I have to figure out, like, so glum and jovial are great right. because and, they're about how you've done it. And they're also not character stats. They're, they're global. They're called tones, but they're like each yeah. scene is one or the other. And then your character does have some some stats that are that are um, descriptive that like you have some special feats that like you know this is a cool thing I can do and make a glum tone jovial or the reverse yeah and and which which is again another great way of looking at how you can cut the stats in different ways in that yeah. it, it's attributing the glum the glumness and the joviality to the to this overriding scene based or setting based or whatever moment mm-hmm. you know that for the group yeah. mm-hmm. for the for the for the fiction uh, and then it skips like skills and attributes entirely and goes just straight to the feats. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's so like, okay, that's cool. So, so we, this is how this is what the world is like. Mm-hmm. It's going to be one of these two things. Got it. Right. And then you can mess with it. Cool. How right. do I do that? You do one of these things. Got it. Right. Let's go. And then anything that your snake-headed priestess can could could conceivably possibly do, you can do. Right. Right. There's no other than table sense of like. That doesn't sound like a cool thing. It's in that bucket of like we all agree that snake-headed lizard priestesses do hypnotism magic. Absolutely, they can speak with snakes. No problem. Right. Snakes no problem. and colored sand all day long. They can work any spells that involve snakes and colored sand. Right. Yeah. There's an assumption in there, right? Which is that I mean, and this is like what Russell's talking about, which is that how much the fewer the stats, the more parsing. Mm-hmm of a kind goes on, which is that, well, I don't know, does that make sense for this character concept? Does that make sense for what we mean by glum or jovial mm-hmm. or by fight or defend or and, by coarse or fine? And the more you depend on everyone, everyone kind of being on the same vibe, 
and kind of being all bought into each other's character. And maybe your game also provides tools that help make that happen. Right. Support, yeah. But where something could break down is where it doesn't, and it's more of a, like, here's a one-shot where we all sit down and we all made characters beforehand or something, and it's very lightly statted and very heavily descriptive, and we don't have any context for saying, oh, that is something your character can do, or oh, no, that isn't an appropriate thing for your character to do. You need to rely on this other character. Maybe that's a time that you don't want to depend on that kind of thing and have a more filled out set of concrete here are the 10 things that I do and here are the 10 things you do and you know never the twain shall meet or whatever and and thinking about how it is that your game can survive the addition or subtraction of that mechanism right like D&D is actually great at the fact that you can take a skill system out of it and still fight monsters and get mm-hmm. treasure and you see that with the uh, retro clones, right? Where yeah. it's like, just go back to just make skill checks. Or ch- just swap out skill systems entirely, or redefine yeah. how the niches are protected, or how we decide if something mm-hmm. in the system of how we decided what is and is not actually ac- accomplished, what has occurred. Right. That's one thing, like if your game is in conversation with other games, really having a finely granular thing can make it difficult to, to like, I'm going to run this adventure with this game, or, right. you know, that kind of thing. Like the the... OSR has done a really great job of kind of doing a lot of cl- cross-platforming, where like if I have this awesome Dungeon Crawl Classics module, I can run it with Into the Odd, which is kind of my favorite version of, of the retro clone kind of things. Cool. And there's like very little you have to do to, to change things mechanically. It's almost all fictional, and they all kind of rest on the same general bedrock of assumptions about how granular characters are right. and what stats they're going to have to address the content of play. The, the, the two other aspects of this that I really wanted to, to that, that came to mind immediately from Russell's question for me were what I sometimes refer to as fibrous rules or rules that have deep roots, right? Not necessarily in the hobby, but in the game. So in other words, it's like, if I take the medicine skill out, it changes the healing rules, the damage rules, right? It, that its its tendrils mm-hmm. stretch out all over the all over the game, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so that when I pull it out by the root, this long fiber, this long thread comes out that I have to keep pulling out like a sweater until I go, oh god, I have yanked the power supply out of the healing system, out of the doctor as a character class, mm-hmm. out of all this stuff. Ten monsters are now useless, mm-hmm. etc. That kind of is, is part of the like unwieldiness that he talks about, right? Yeah. Where it's like steering the ship can actually get very difficult once the once the skills, you know, make it so wide to right. mix a couple metaphors. Right. And, that, and that's why, and that relates too to why very often, I think in every game now that I, that I make by design, as opposed to just hacking to see what happens or whatever, mm-hmm. is that I always assume skills and stuff overlap. Not necessarily to the same degree, but so that it's not, so that when somebody says, I want to get through that door, I know that as a GM, first of all, I don't want to say in the adventure, this door must be picked. Or I want to say it as rarely as possible. Right. That's a real bottleneck. It can be that kind of a value to mm-hmm. say that be a gated section. But I want to say they have to get through this door. Are they going to knock it down? Which might be strength unless they, it turns out that they're like, no, I'm just going to keep at it. I'm just going to keep hitting and kicking this door until piece by piece comes off and I'm going to use it with, with endurance. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I'm going to go through the transom over top. That's dexterity or whatever, right? That even if the skills are pretty ironclad, then in the adventure design level, I look for, and then and then this will reflect back into the game, into the book and the mechanics, I look for ways in which they can overlap. Problems that are interesting, in which I go, are you guys going to do this with dexterity, or are you going to do this with intelligence? Are you going to do this with your necromancy skill, or are you going to use medicine? Mm-hmm. These kind of things, right? Right. 
More and more what I find is that the, the places where skills and stats don't overlap are representative of what a game's themes are, what it's, mm, what it's about. Sure, yeah. Often the most interesting forms of play and the most interesting puzzles to pose during play are the intersections, mm-hmm. the places where two themes collide in the form of two stats being viable. And sometimes that is as simple as saying, well, I'm great at dexterity, you're great at intelligence, and you, know, you, haven't, had a, you haven't had a turn in a while, go. Right. Or it can be as simple as, I have, I have great dexterity, and that's obviously what we have to do in this situation, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. the fiction makes it obvious. Mm-hmm. In which case, then what I know is that over time, over play, is to state the fiction in ways that makes intelligence more the, the more obvious solution to help move spotlight around the table or what mm-hmm. have you, mm-hmm. and then use that to inform how I, how I instruct the GM in the book. But the only part of that that's strictly mechanical is that notion that, that it is okay for stats to have a certain degree of overlap, and mm-hmm. that if you picture it like, a, like, a, like a, it doesn't have to be sacred geometry where everything is perfectly measured out and every stat is the exact same size, mm-hmm. because there's also depth and there's just raw... Right. Yeah. And this frequency, can. right, like the, the idea that all characters are probably going to have this stat, or have to have this stat. Right. You know, depending on how, like, all characters have the six core attributes in D&D. So like they those all overlap in that sense, right? So whether you do something as a attribute test, attribute test versus a skill test or proficiency or whatever addition you're yeah. playing, that moves the overlap from any one any of the characters could potentially do this to only the characters that that took this stuff now have the overlap to potentially do this, right? Right. There's also a, there's a thing which comes with in in using that as a as an example in D and D, in which if you think of the party as a specific as a unit of character. Mm-hmm. Which is to say, this is why you say never split the party. It's not just because they can become vulnerable, but because you say, but now we don't have the, but the thief isn't here. We can't get through this door. Right. We have lockpicking skills. Mm-hmm. I don't. And I've all, and there are games that do it that make the party more of a, of a cohesive unit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always been fascinated by the fact that in D&D that is essentially implicit. Mm-hmm. Right? That yeah, it's, the party role, like having the slots all filled... Right, which, is. which which four does, but mm-hmm. but is that that notion not just having the slots filled, but that 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 the tactical disadvantages of splitting the party mm-hmm. are not there's no stat for that. There's no like what what percentage of the party is present stat, right? Right. But it is absolutely a part of play. It's just yeah. that thief becomes like a binary stat. Do we have a thief? Yes, great. So we have a thief stat is rated at one rather than <laughs> zero. I think there's some some digital games that have done this where yeah. you as the player the stats that you have for the dungeon crawl are party wizard, thief, cleric, and like they right. have a number. And so if you're fighting something, you use the fighter stat. And if you're doing yeah. magic, you use the wizard stat or whatever. And those like represent individual characters. I want to do a one shot, a D&D one shot, which is li- which literally just uses like the 5e character classes on mm-hmm. the stats. But yeah. you do it in standard in a classic 3 to 18. Oh, yeah. Right? So so what's your, what do you got in fighter? I have an 18 in fighter, but only a 3 in wizard. Mm-hmm. Well, guess you're the fighter. <laughs> So if we assume things like class is a is a stat, it's just binary, right? My character is a fighter, or is that put a point in fighter and you are a fighter, and mm-hmm. then or a level in fighter and you are a fighter, and you have zero levels and everything else. Mm-hmm. That all of these things are stats, and that they reflect what a game is about and how it is about it. And there's no and so what you want the game to do is kind of the guiding principle to find out yeah. how you're going to slice up the color wheel. How do you approach as a player or as a GM or as a designer with the understanding that all those overlap? When you approach a new game, playing it, that exists, where do you find comfort in granularity? When is a game, mm. like, how do you know if you decided the game is too granular or not granular enough mm. or, or what have you? I mean, for me, it comes back to the, the amount that I can kind of keep in my head at one time, yeah. right? Well, well, there's two aspects. There's that, 
Uh, so there's kind of that holistic sense of like, do I understand the capabilities that I have to affect this game, you know, through my character, which is usually the, the lens through which I'm going into a new game. And the other is, if I don't know what to do, does this character sheet tell me things I can do? Which right. is another dimension of it that I think I've been thinking of a little more, like really appreciating in a lot of games where I might not be as comfortable with the setting or if I'm playing a convention and it's with strangers and I don't have a sense of what the tone of the game is going to be yet until we get into it a little bit. Right. If I can look at my character sheet and say, oh, this character can do this, this, and this. Great. So I'm going to look for and engineer situations where I can use these things because then I'm contributing, I'm learning about how this works, I'm being a productive member of the game. Yeah. As opposed to like, I'm going to go, I'm going to grab the hang glider and jump off the cliff. Well, do you, do you, are you a hang glide pilot? No. Do you have any hang gliding powers or skills? No, I just think it'll be cool. And then, and then we're in a situation where like the GM, for example, is either, oh, how do I save this? Because t- technically, if you don't have the skill, then right. you're going to fail. And Suddenly then you're gonna... it has to be a property of the hang glider. Right, yeah. That separates hang gliding from just falling off a cliff. Right, right. <laughs> And I think most games do this. Either if it's a collaborative world building thing where we all start from scratch, then we kind of do it together. And by the time we're done, I have a sense of who the character is and what they do. Or I pick up a sheet, like uh, if it's a fake game, and I look at my aspects, I know what the character can do. Right. Right. And that's like a really clear... I can do other things. I can do lots of other things. But if I need a fallback position or I need a way to say this character is going to contribute to this game right now, mm-hmm. I can just pick something off my sheet. So the granularity sake, like maybe three to five distinct things that I feel like are likely to come up yeah. is good because I can both keep that in my head, engineer situations, and probably actually use them. I'm thinking of a one-shot here, like a one-shot demo or a, sure. one, a single four-hour game to get a sense of how a game works. It's finding that spot, I feel like, and, th- and this is what, I mean, this is, playtesting is essential for this, right? Because mm-hmm. one group is different from another group, and what you think it's going to work versus how it works, but is that yet another continuum we find, in this case between being stumped on one end and decision paralysis on the other, which right. have the same result. <laughs> right, it's, uh, it's another circle with the, the two ends just about to touch. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> Where I don't know what to do, mm-hmm. there are too many options, and I don't know what to do because I don't see what to do. I have no <laughs> guidance. I have no guidance. Yeah. Another, at a right angle to that, is the idea of with a more granular or complicated system, um, like I played uh, Mouse Guard over the weekend for the first time. Oh, cool. And I haven't played Mouse Guard before, but I played Burning Wheel and a little bit of Burning Empires, just a touch. So I like know the parameters of the, of the general sense of how the game works. I kind of know how the different parts all chunk together, even if I don't know the details about how they work specifically in Mouse Guard. So I was able to be a little more, I was able to do some more nuanced things in that game than if I hadn't played any of the Burning Wheel systems at all and was depending on looking at my sheet and being like, okay, I have about 12 skills and like four of them have high numbers, so I probably want to use those. And then I have these traits, so I want to try and play to those because they're big and on the sheet and important. Right. And past that, it's all kind of fictional stuff. And then when you get into scripting and all, all that business kind of, pushes you down a path. They only use certain subsets of the mechanics. Yeah. You know, and I think I, I had I had a good time because I was I had enough system knowledge to do a little more interesting stuff than just the basic come to a cold, 
figure it out as we go along. Just use the high numbers on my sheet mm -hmm. approach. Having that that those through lines of of numbers and stats is something that I realized and that I'm riffing on in some stuff now, but that it comes off of in uh, always never now, which is uh, not only Lady Blackbird in this way. There are no recurring numbers. There's no there's no mm -hmm. like attribute that everybody shares. Mm -hmm. Everybody's stat is a descriptor of the character that is different from everybody else's. Mm -hmm. So that means that I can't in the game in the in the rules say if this is used this happens. Mm -hmm. If this is used it's harder or it's easier because there are just too many damn things to have to list and address. So the game has to be agnostic with the, the, the GM facing side and I don't know which characters can be present. Right. Has to be agnostic of which stats are actually even in play. They all behave essentially the same way, but when they behave is mm -hmm. fictional positioning. Right. Is my, is, does being quick, does hurtling over a thing, does throwing mm -hmm. something matter right now? If it does, great, then I can get a die for it. They're all worth one die. But it means that I can't say, I mean, I could say if Tank is present, she can do this, right? Mm -hmm. But I can't say, and, and I don't want to do that because I don't want to have whole swaths of the adventure that just don't work if somebody doesn't play Tank. Right. And so, or like break it out so that every character has a line for everything of like, if this person's here, do this. If right. this person's here, do this. Like that. That's yeah. madness. And the flashbacks in, in Always Never Now are kind of my a, a, a piece of that, where you can flash back to that character's history mm -hmm. and get a unique piece of content if that character is present. But in, uh, it's actually, I'm taking to Metatopia, which is uh, something that is very similar, but has a handful of stats that are the same for all characters, so that it's possible for the GMs and the other players to say, what this calls for is blank, without having to go, well, what do you have in your sheet? I don't even know what you have. Right. So now they can communicate. Yeah. And that's what I feel like is is intrinsic in what you're saying about like mouse guard and such, which is that when you see that list of traits, there's the assumption that not everybody has those same five words on their sheet. Right, right. So if I play to this, I am also giving space to other players. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that ability yeah. to communicate in that, that, that's an unusual situation right? where in D&D, &D, everybody has the same six stats. Mm -hmm. In Lady Blackbird, or Always Ever Now, nobody has the same stats. Right. There's a continuum there as well, which yeah. is between how much we can communicate and how long it takes to do it. Mm -hmm. Great questions. Yeah, very excellent questions. Thank you, everyone. We appreciate all the contributions. Keep them coming uh, through G+, and, of course, the Ask button at our website, designgamespodcast.com. Thanks for listening to the Design Games Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a rating or review on your pod listening apparatus of choice. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just... <laughs>